Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 56, verses 27 through 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Burkett notes, The next part of our Lord's suffering consisted of cruel mocking. Our blessed Savior had said that he was king of the Jews, not a temporal king to reign over them with pomp and power, but a spiritual king to rule in the hearts of his people. But the Jews, missing their expectation of a temporal king in Christ, look upon him as an impostor, and accordingly they treat him as a mock king, putting a crown upon his head, but a very ignominious and painful one, a crown of thorns, a scepter in his hand, but it was a reed, and a robe of purple or scarlet, both which were used by princes, and bowed the knee before him, as they were wont to do to princes. Thus all the marks of scorn imaginable are put upon our blessed Redeemer. Yet that which they did in jest, God did in earnest. For all these things were ensigns and marks of sovereignty. And Almighty God caused the regal dignity of his Son to appear and shine forth, even in the midst of his greatest abasement. Whence was all this jeering and sport, but to flout majesty? And why did Christ undergo all this ignominy, disgrace, and shame, but to show us what was due unto us for our sins, and to give us an example to bear all the scorn, reproach, and shame imaginable for his sake? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame? Verses 32 to 36. As they came out, they found a man of Serene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him, and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there. Burkett notes, The sentence of death being passed by Pilate, who can with dry eyes behold the sad pomp of our Savior's bloody execution? Forth comes the blessed Jesus out of Pilate's gates, bearing that cross which would soon after to bear him. With his cross on his shoulder, he marches towards Golgotha. And when they see he can go no faster, they force Simon, the Cyrenian, not out of compassion, but from indignation, to be the porter of his cross. This Cyrenian, being a Gentile, not a Jew, who bear our Savior's cross, might signify and show that the Gentiles should have a part in Christ and be sharers with the Jews in the benefit of his cross. At length, Christ comes to the place of execution, Golgotha, or Mount Calvary. Here, in a public place, with infamous company, betwixt two thieves, he is crucified, that is, fastened to a great cross of wood, his hands stretched abroad, his feet close together, and both hands and feet fastened with nails. His naked body was lifted up in the open air, 
hanging between heaven and earth, thereby intimating that the crucified person was unfit to live in either. This shameful, painful, and accursed death did the holy and innocent Jesus undergo for sinners. Some observe all the dimensions of length, breadth, depth, and height in our Savior's suffering. For length, his passion was several hours long, from twelve to three, exposed all that time both to hunger and cold. The thieves crucified with him were not dead so soon. They endured but personal pain, he undergoing the miseries of all mankind. But what his passion wanted in length, it had it in breadth extending over all parts and powers of his soul and body, no part free but his tongue, which was at liberty to pray for his enemies. His sight was tormented with the scornful gestures of such as passed by, wagging their heads. His hearing grieved with the taunts and jeers of the priests and people. His smelling offended with the noisome savors in the place of skulls. His taste with the gall and vinegar given him to drink. His feeling was wonderfully affected by the nails which pierced his hands and feet, and the crown of thorns which pierced his tender temples with a multiplicity of wounds. And for the depth of his passion, it was as deep as hell itself, enduring tortures in his soul as well as torments in his body, groaning under the burden of desertion and crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Lastly, for the height of his suffering. They were as high as heaven, his person being innocent and infinite, no less than the Son of God, which adds an infinite worth and value to his suffering. Lord, let us be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length, depth and height, and let us know the love of Christ, which in suffering for us passeth knowledge. So infinite every way were the dimensions of it. Verse 37. And set up over his head... His accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Burkett notes, It was the manner of the Romans, when they crucified any man, to publish the cause of his death in capital letters placed over the head of the person. Now see how the wisdom and providence of God powerfully overruled the heart and pen of Pilate to draw this title, which was truly honorable, and affix it to his cross. Pilate is Christ's herald and proclaims him king of the Jews. Learn hence that the regal dignity of Christ was proclaimed by an enemy, and that in a time of his greatest suffering and reproaches. Pilate did Christ a special honor and an eminent piece of service. He did that for Christ, which none of his own disciples durst do. But he did not do it designedly for his glory, but from the special overruling power of his divine providence. But the highest services performed to Christ undesignedly shall never be accepted nor rewarded by God. Verses 38 through 44. Then were the two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroy the temple and built it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise all the chief priests mocking him, and the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Burkett notes, Here we have several aggravations of our Lord's suffering upon the cross. One, from the company he suffered with, two thieves. It had been disparagement enough to our blessed Savior to have been sorted with the best of men, but to be numbered with the scum of mankind is such an indignity as confounds our thoughts. This was intended by the Jews to dishonor him the more, and to persuade the world that he was the greatest of offenders. But God overruled this, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He was numbered with the transgressors. Two, another aggravation of our Lord's suffering on the cross, was the scorn and mocking diversion which he had met with in his dying moments from the common people, from the chief priests, and from the thieves that suffered with him. The common people, both in words and actions, expressed scorn and detestation against him. They reviled him, wagging their heads. The chief priests, though men of age and gravity, not only barbarously mock him in his extremest misery, whom humanity obliged them to pity, but they scoff atheistically and profanely, jeering at his faith and affiance in God, tauntingly saying, He trusted in God that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. Where observe that prosecutors are generally atheists, though they make a profession of religion. The chief priests and elders here, though learned and knowing men, yet they blasphemed God, mocked at his power, and derided his providence, which was as bad as to deny his being. Hence we may gather that those who administer to God in holy things by way of office, if they do not the best, they are the worst of men. No such bitter enemies to the power of godliness as the ministers of religion who were never acquainted with the efficacy and power of it in their own hearts and lives. Nothing on this side of hell is worse than a wicked priest, a minister of God devoted to the service of the devil. A third aggravation of our Lord's suffering on the cross was that the thieves that suffered with him reviled him with the rest. That is, one of them, as St. Luke has it, or perhaps both of them, might do it at first which, if so, increases the wonder of the penitent thief's conversion. From the thief's impenitency we learn that neither shame nor pain will change the mind of a resolute sinner, but even then, when he is in the very suburbs of hell, will he blaspheme. Verses 45 through 50 Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land unto the ninth hour, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calls for Elijah. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. The rest said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus, when he cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, how the rays of Christ's divinity and the glory of his Godhead break out and shine forth in the midst of that infirmity which his human nature labored under. He shows himself to be the God of nature by altering the course of nature. The sun is eclipsed and darkness overspreads the earth for three hours, namely from twelve o'clock to three. Thus the sun and the firmament becomes close mourner at our Lord's death, and the whole frame of nature puts itself into a funeral habit. Observe, too, 
that the chief of Christ's sufferings consisted in the suffering of his soul. The distress of his spirit was more intolerable than the torments of his body, as appears by his mournful complaint, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Being the first words of the 22nd Psalm, and some conceive that he repeated the whole psalm, it being an admirable narrative of the dolors of his passion. Learn thence that the Lord Jesus Christ, when suffering for our sins, was really deserted for a time and left destitute of all sensible consolation. Why hast thou forsaken me? Learn farther that under this desertion Christ despaired not, but still retained a firm persuasion of God's love unto him and experienced necessary support from him. My God, my God, these are words of faith and affiance, striving under temptation. Christ was thus forsaken for us, that we might never be forsaken of God. Yet by God's forsaking of Christ, this is not to be understood any abatement of divine love, but only a withdrawing from the human nature the sense of his love, and a letting out upon his soul a deep afflicting sense of his displeasure against sin. There is a total and eternal desertion by which God utterly forsakes a man, both of his grace and glory, being wholly cast out of God's presence and adjudged to eternal torment. This was not compatible to Christ, nor agreeable to the dignity of his person. But there is a partial and temporary desertion when God, for a little moment, hides his face from his children. Now this was both agreeable to the dignity of Christ's nature and also suitable to his office who was to satisfy the justice of God for our forsaking of him, and to bring us near to him, that we might be received forever. Observe lastly what a miraculous evidence Christ gives of his divinity instantly before he gave up the ghost. He cried with a loud voice. This showed that he did not die according to ordinary course of nature, gradually departing and withdrawing on, as we express it. No, his life was whole in him, and nature is strong at last as at first. Other men die gradually, and towards their end, their sense of pain is much blunted. They falter, fumble, and die by degrees. But Christ stood under the pain of death in his full strength. His life was whole in him. This was evident by the mighty outcry he made when he gave up the ghost, contrary to the sense and experience of all other persons. This argued him to be of full strength, and that he could cry with such a loud voice, as he did, could have kept himself from dying if he would. Hence learn that when Christ died, he rather conquered death than was conquered by death. He must voluntarily and freely lay down his life before death could come at him. He yielded up the ghost. Oh, wonderful insight! The Lord of life hangs dead, dead on the accursed tree. Oh, severe and inexorable justice in God! Oh, amazing and astonishing love in Christ, love beyond expression, beyond conception, beyond all comprehension. With what comparison shall we compare it? Verily, with nothing but itself. Never was love like thine. Verses 51 through 56. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion, and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake, 
and those things that were done. They feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many women were there, beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebediah's children. Burkett notes, Here we have an account of several extraordinary and wonderful things which occurred and fell out about the time that our Savior died. 1. The veil of the temple rent asunder. That is, the hanging which parted the holy from the most holy place, to hide the mysteries therein, namely the Ark of the Covenant and Mercy Seat, from the view of the ordinary priests. This veil was now rent from top to bottom, and the rending of it did import these great mysteries. 1. That our now great high priest was entering into the most holy place with his own blood, having made the atonement for us. Hebrews 9.12 By his own blood he entered once into the most holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. 2. That the means whereby he entered into the most holy place was by the rending of his humanity, his soul from his body, typified by the rending of this veil. Accordingly, his body is called a veil. Hebrews 10.20 Consecrated through the veil of his flesh. 3. That now by the death of Christ... All those dark mysteries veiled up formerly in the most holy place, as the Ark of the Covenant and Mercy Seed, are now unfolded and laid open, and the use of the whole ceremonial law at an end, and the Jewish temple service ceased. For that now the kingdom of heaven, the most holy place, is open to all believers. Christ, our great high priest, is entered in with his own blood, and hath not closed the veil after him, but rented asunder, and made and left the passage for all believers to follow him, first in their prayers, and next in their persons. See Hebrews 10, 19-20. Having therefore boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, let us draw near with a true heart, etc. Observe too, the earth quaked. As there was a universal eclipse, so likewise a universal earthquake at our Lord's crucifixion, which did awaken many of the saints that died before our Savior's incarnation out of their dead sleep. These arose both as witnesses of Christ's resurrection and also as sharers in it, but none of them arose until Christ was risen, he being the first fruits of them that slept. And those holy persons that arose with him possibly attended him to heaven at his ascension. From hence we learn that Christ was the Savior of those who believed in him before his incarnation, as well as of those that believed in him since his incarnation, and that the former are partakers of the fruits and benefits of his death and resurrection no less than the latter. Others conjecture that those who rose out of their graves were such as believed in Christ and died before him as old Simon, etc., Accordingly, they understand St. John 5.25, The hour is coming, and now is, that the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of Man. Of this resurrection here mentioned, and whereas it is said they went into the holy city and appeared to many, it's probable they were known to them unto whom they did appear, and if so, they must have lived in the time of their knowledge. Observe next, what influence and effect the sight of those prodigious things had upon the centurions and the soldiers. 
and convinced them that verily this was the Son of God. Here we see the heathen soldiers are sooner convinced of the divinity of Christ than the unbelieving Jewish doctors. Obstinacy and unbelief filled their minds with an invincible prejudice against Christ, so that neither the miracles done by him in his life nor wrought at his death could convince the high priests that Christ was any other than an impostor and deceiver. Observe lastly, who of Christ's friends were witnesses of his death? They are women who followed him from Galilee and ministered unto him. Not one of his dear disciples, except St. John, who stood by the cross with the Virgin Mary. What a shame was this for the apostles to be absent from a spectacle upon which the salvation of the whole world did depend. And what an honor was this to the female sex in general, and to these women in particular, that they had the courage to follow Christ to the cross, when all the disciples forsook him and fled. God can make women glorious professors of his truth, and arm them against the fear of suffering, contrary to the natural timorousness of their tempers. These women wait upon Christ's cross when apostles fly and dares not come near it. <laughs>